great to be with you all uh, this morning. It's a real privilege, and uh, it's a pleasure to, to come and worship with you. Um, I, I am going to speak just briefly about who I am and what I do, uh, but that's not what I want to spend most of my time on. Obviously, we're here to see what God's Word has to say, um, but so that you know a little bit about who it is who's speaking to you, I'll just tell you uh, briefly about myself. Uh, my name is Peter Green, and I grew up in Pennsylvania. Uh, my grandfather actually pastored a church in West Virginia for 65 years uh, over on the eastern panhandle. Uh, he was a farmer uh, outside of Hagerstown, Maryland, and had a church, Brethren Church, just across the border in West Virginia. Um, immediately before uh, coming to West Virginia, I was in Alaska for three years. Um, in the sermon, I'm going to talk a little bit about that, uh, about my experience up in Alaska. And, um, and before that, I was doing a Ph.D. at Wheaton College in Chicago uh, and seminary in St. Louis. Um, I uh, moved to West Virginia a year and a half ago or so, uh, this, not this most recent summer, but the summer before that, in order to start the ministry at West Virginia University. So I work full-time on the college campus uh, with college students um, as an ordained minister of the Presbyterian Church in America. So the organization that I'm with, Reformed University Fellowship. It is the campus ministry wing of the Presbyterian Church in America, Um, and we exist to uh, reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. Not just Presbyterians, um, that's uh, my conviction and credentials, but we're there to to reach all students and to serve and equip all students. Um, And uh, so we start, the ministry started a year and a half ago, um, it's been going very well, uh, and uh, I'd love to, to talk more about that. Uh, I'll hang around after the service if you want to um, catch up. If, if you know of students, uh, if you have nephews, nieces, cousins, grandchildren, whatever, who are at WVU, who are not involved with a, a ministry, um, I'd love to get their contact information and reach out to them. Um, and uh, it's partly why I, I do this. I go around to, to visit other uh, like-minded churches in order to let you all know that I'm there, I'm, I'm on campus, um, and to, uh, to make contact. Um, if, you're, if you're interested in learning more about the ministry or praying for the ministry, um, I do have a, a newsletter um, that I send out. You can sign up for that. Um, and uh, so anyway, so, so that's what I do on campus. Uh, as an ordained minister, I'm there to pastor the students. We lead weekly Bible studies, counsel, uh, and disciple one-on-one with students, uh, and connect them with uh, local churches. Um, so that's what I do, and, uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful uh, and glad to be here with you all this morning. <coughs> and uh, so uh, let's turn to Matthew uh, chapter 16. And um, before we dive into the text and the sermon, uh, just share with you a little bit about my experience up in Alaska. So my wife is from Alaska. Her, her parents are there. Her, she has aunts and uncles up there. And she did not grow up as a Christian. Her father was an, was an outspoken atheist. Um, her mother, I think, was a Christian of some sort, very weak Christian, um, but didn't really talk much about it because of her father. And my wife got converted after college, and then uh, she and I met in St. Louis in seminary. And uh, we've been married now 10 years. We just celebrated our 
10-year wedding anniversary three weeks ago, something like that. And uh, ever since she and I have known each other and, and have been dating, we had been hoping and praying for a church in Alaska, uh, in the, the, her hometown, small uh, hometown in Alaska, that we could encourage her parents to go to. And um, I spent a lot of time online researching churches, made phone calls to talk to pastors anytime we went up to visit for Christmas or the summer. We'd visit different churches and uh, never was able to find a suitable one. And I, and I don't think that's because we we're particularly picky. I think that's because Alaska is weird and it draws weird people and weird people start weird churches. And um, we there were a couple churches that we encouraged my mother-in-law to go to and she didn't have a positive experience. Um, so we were really... Uh, this was a prayer that we had for many years that we would have a, a church in Alaska that, that she and my father-in-law could go to. And uh, in my fourth year, working on my dissertation, um, at PhD at Wheaton, <clears throat> we, uh, my wife pitched the idea of moving to Alaska. Uh, we, we had recently um, had, had an, had made an effort to find a job and uh, that had failed, and so we sort of were left hanging. Uh, and she suggested that we go and we live with my in-laws, and uh, we were sort of batting this idea around um, and thinking, go and spend time with my in-laws, give them a chance to, to have some time with our kids, their grandkids. Uh, and I would find work in the oil and gas industry, and the rotational work up there would give me a chance to finish my dissertation. Um, and as we were talking about this, we learned that there were a group of families up there that were interested in starting a church. And in fact, one of the families um, had been in my dad's college ministry 25 years ago in Pennsylvania. It's a very small coincidence, if you want to call it that. Um, and, uh, and so that was sort of the deciding factor, that we'd go up to Alaska to spend time with my in-laws. We would, uh, I would find work in the oil and gas industry to finish my dissertation, and we would help this group of families get started. And it really looked like God was answering prayers that we had had for many, many years. And as we came, we, we did move up, we got involved, we um, got to know some of the families, we learned that they also had sort of been praying for a church. Uh, for many years. And so God was sort of bringing things together um, to get this church started. And I was there, and for a year I led the group, um, uh, weekly Bible studies, meeting with the people. And after a year, we called a full-time church planter, uh, an acquaintance of mine from seminary, and he and his family came up right uh, almost a year to the day when I was there, and just as I was going to be leaving uh, every two weeks to work in the oil and gas industry. Um, and so uh, he arrived, he led the group, the group grew, we started monthly worship services, then we started weekly Sunday morning worship services, uh, and everything looked like it was going really well. And we did that for a few, for two years. I finished my dissertation, and uh, at that point, we, my wife and I um, sort of considered that we had accomplished what we had said uh, we were going to Alaska to do. We'd spent three years with my in-laws. I'd finished my dissertation, and we'd helped. And by all accounts, it looked like it was um, going to continue to grow and be healthy. And so that's when I started looking for a job, and I accepted the uh, position with RUF at WVU. And uh, within, a, within a month... 
of accepting the job and committing to leaving Alaska, we learned that our church planter, my friend, Andrew, uh, had terminal cancer. And he, uh, at that time, was given maybe six months to live, maybe a few months, maybe two or three months. And um, you can imagine the sort of turmoil and confusion um, that we experienced, that the church experienced, that Andrew and his wife experienced, sort of seeing how God had answered prayers of many years, um, and and everything looked like God was uh, going to be blessing the situation. And at this moment when the church was in its very fragile state, um, and I had already committed to leaving, sending a curveball like that, uh, you, you can imagine wondering, what is God doing? Why is he doing this? Does he even care? And I especially wrestled with the decision, should I go back on my commitment uh, to, to leave, to take the job at West Virginia, even though everything had already been set in motion? Should I stay in Alaska to help? Um, what, uh, what is God doing in this situation? And um, Perhaps you have situations like that in your life, not necessarily in church, but maybe in your family or your career, um, relationships uh, that you might have, where you're wondering, what is God doing? Um, The signs that he's sending are confusing. Uh, We don't really understand what he's he's doing in this situation. And I think this passage is going to have something to say to us about that. what I hope for this, uh, for this morning is that we leave having a, a better understanding of what Jesus is doing and what we can put our hope in in the midst of such uncertainty. And that's partly what we celebrate or what we remember during the season of Advent. It's a season of wait, waiting, preparation, uh, remembering the, the long years that God's people waited for Jesus to come. Uh, and also reflecting on the long years that God's people have waited for Jesus to return. Um, and uh, there's a lot of waiting in the Bible. Uh, God requires a lot of people to wait. And think of Abraham. Uh, receive the promise. You will have a son. And yet, that promise took 25 years to fulfill. And we know, uh, if you're familiar with the story of Abraham... How confused he was in those 25 years and how he sought to, um, to uh, see God's promise realized on his own strength uh, because he was confused about what God was doing. And, uh, and you can imagine the disciples on Holy Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the waiting, the confusion, what is God doing? Uh, he, he seemed to be blessing the ministry of this Jesus whom we followed. Uh, everything seemed to be going well, and now Jesus and buried. Uh, what is God doing? And so waiting uh, is, is, a, is a crucial part of the Christian life. Uh, and yet I think this passage has some comfort and encouragement for us. Certainly it did for me as I was reflecting on the situation uh, in Alaska two years ago. And so... Um, Today, what I want to look at, we're going to, we're going to consider the passage uh, as a whole. We're going to look at various um, parts of the passage. But really, we're going to focus, we're going to narrow in and focus on one phrase uh, that Jesus says in verse 18. He says uh, to, to, to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That phrase, I will build my church, that's what I want to focus in on today. Um, and, uh, and, and it's going to provide the, the structure for the sermon. So Jesus builds his church. That's what Jesus has said. Jesus builds his church. There's, we're going to have four points to the sermon, uh, and each point corresponds with one of the words in that sentence. Jesus builds his church. So who is it? that's doing the building. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who builds. What is it that he's doing? He's building. He's building the church. Whose church is he building? It's his church. And finally, what is it that he's building? He's building the, the church. Now we're going to do it um, a little bit backwards. We're going to start at the end of the sentence and work our way back. So church is builds Jesus. I hope that's um, not too confusing. Uh, and uh, but I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat just so we know where we are uh, as we go along. So Jesus builds his church. We're going to start at the end with church. What is it that Jesus is building? Jesus is building his church. Uh, what does that mean? What's the significance of that? Well, I think it's helpful to think about what Jesus doesn't say. Right? Jesus doesn't say, I'm building the nation of Israel. Right? He doesn't say, I'm going to build the Jewish empire. I'm, I'm going to cast off the yoke of the Romans. We're going to reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem, and we're going to, um, re, you know, I'm going to build the the, uh, the the Jewish kingdom. Right? He doesn't say that, even though we know that many of the Jews of the day wanted exactly that. Uh, in fact, throughout the Gospels, we see them trying to make Jesus do that, and Jesus can continually resists that. So it's significant that Jesus says, I will build my church, right? It's the church that Jesus is building. Um, Jesus doesn't say, uh, and of course we wouldn't expect him to say this, but, but he doesn't say, I'll build uh, your family. He doesn't say, I'll build your career. He doesn't say, I will build America. He doesn't even necessarily say, I will build your congregation, right? Jesus says, I will build my church. Uh, it's the church global, the, the universal church that Jesus builds. Uh, and to which Jesus has given his promise. Even Peter uh, is just the rock upon which Jesus builds. So there's a couple things uh, I think that we can take away from this. Uh, one, of this one of the things is that uh, we, 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 we don't get to take pride in our accomplishments. Jesus is the one who's doing the work, um, and, it, and it's him who, uh, he who gets the credit. Uh, it also means that we trust Jesus to accomplish his work, even when things look hopeless. Um, oh, I was, I was looking at that. I was like, wait a second. That, that seems like that's the wrong point. Well, it's because I had my, my page turned turn backwards. Um, sorry, okay. So Jesus builds his church, uh, right? Uh, one of the things that that, one of the implications for, for us uh, is that the church is Jesus' primary means of work in the world. Um, and so uh, if we think about how we, uh, view uh, w- what we put our hope in, um, where our emotional stability comes from. Does it come from the church? Does it come from knowing that Jesus is building his church? Um, and just to, uh, just to make this a little bit more pointed, think about uh, politics for a second. Think about elections. I know um, it's probably not what you want to do. Um, and, uh, and yet, that's, it's big part of our culture and our life. And you can imagine, um, perhaps think with me for a second, uh, 
how you feel when your candidate or when your party wins, and conversely, how you feel when your candidate and your party loses. Now, politics is important. Um, I'm very political myself. I wrote for a political newspaper in college. I follow politics. Politics has real serious consequences in people's lives, and for that reason, I think it matters, and it matters to Jesus. But uh, what I think we see here is that politics is not the means of salvation in the world. Because that's the case, it's also not um, uh, a cause for despair when things don't go as we expect. Uh, it's, it's the church, ultimately, which is the one that proclaims the only means of salvation, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, the church is the one uh, to whom Jesus has tasked to, uh, to tell the world of what he did in his death and resurrection. So one of the applications for us is that uh, to attend and participate in church. Sort of an odd thing to say uh, on a Sunday morning to a bunch of people who are already here, uh, right? Um, it, you're here, that's good, uh, that's great. Um, I hope that you continue to come and commit yourself to the life of the church. This is where Jesus will most work in you and most work through you. Um, Other things that you're doing in your life are important. Your job, your family, uh, other volunteer work. Um, All of those things are important, but the church is where Jesus is most working in you to change you and most working through you to change the world. Uh, and so commit yourself to a church. And if you have friends, family, neighbors um, who say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but, but who maybe um, don't have a church, maybe they, they aren't committed to a church. Um, one of the, the applications of this, I think, is to, to, to encourage them and say, hey, uh, I really think you need to take seriously what Jesus says, that, that he will build his church. That's where Jesus' work is focused, and I'd encourage you to get involved. Um, so that's the first point. The second point, Jesus builds his church. It's his church. It's not your church, not my church, not the Presbyterian church or the Baptist church or the Methodist church or the Anglican church. It's Jesus's church. It's not uh, Peter's church. It's not Andrew's church. It's not Jim's church. This church, the church, belongs to Jesus. Um, and again, it's the global church. It's, it's the church throughout all the ages. Local congregations will come and go, but God's people gathered in a worshiping community will always exist. And in fact, they will flourish. What this means is that there's no room for despair. Right? When things appear uh, to be going poorly, when a local congregation closes its doors, um, that's no room for dis- there, there's no room for despair. It's no cause for despair. There's also no room for pride or arrogance. Uh, the, the church belongs to Jesus. Uh, he gets the credit. Uh, any success uh, that any uh, one ministry or church has is due to him. Uh, it's not our skill or expertise or charisma or wisdom. Uh, at the end of the day, Jesus uses those things, but still, it's Jesus using them uh, to accomplish his work. Likewise, you can have the most godly, righteous, wise leader of a church that still ends up closing its doors through no fault of his or the congregation's own. It's just uh, God in his providence uh, doing, uh, doing his will. 
And we trust that because it's Jesus' church, he cares for it more than you do. He cares for it more than I do. The church belongs to Jesus. It's his. No one cares more about it than he does. No one has more power to control its destiny than he does. So when things appear to be going poorly, nonetheless, we trust in him. Uh, I'm a Presbyterian, though I love Anglicans. Uh, as I was telling Jim, my, my church um, that I grew up in was very, very similar to uh, Anglican liturgy. And, uh, but as a Presbyterian, our confession, the, the confession of faith that we hold, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, has this to say. There will always be a true church on earth to worship. It's one of my favorite parts of of our confession. There will always be a true church on earth to worship God. Whatever happens, there will always be a church on earth to worship God. This is a great source of hope and comfort for us, for our children, for our grandchildren, for our great-grandchildren, down to 10 or 100 generations, to know that there will always be a place for our descendants to worship God. Um, It was said at the height of the British Empire, that the sun never set on the British flag. Uh, and you, you can picture in your head the, the image there, right, that as the sun um, goes from, you know, from the east to the west all the way around the world, um, everywhere the sun touches, uh, the British flag was there. The British Empire spanned the whole globe. And, uh, of course, we know that the sun has set on the British Empire, right? The, Britain's a great co- country, still powerful, influential, a good ally, um, yet the sun has set on the British flag. And we can imagine even perhaps a day when the sun will set on the American flag. Right now, uh, um, American bases all over, the, all over the world. My brother is stationed in Korea uh, with the army. Uh, everywhere the sun goes, there's an American flag somewhere, but uh, perhaps that will not always be the case. And yet... The sun has never set and will never set on the church. All around the world today, right now, there are people who are gathered together for worship. Maybe not right now. Um, my, my father's actually up in Alaska uh, doing pulpit supply for the, for the church up there. Um, they'll be worshiping in four hours. And uh, my brother in Korea, I think they already worshiped. Uh, I have a brother in Taiwan as well. So, not literally right now, but today, everywhere, all around the world, everywhere the sun touches, there are Christians gathered together for worship. Um, and that will always be the case. That's an incredible thing. So we don't put our hope in the, in the British Empire. We don't put our hope in the American uh, Empire, if you want to call it that. We put our hope in the church uh, and in the fact that Jesus has promised there will always be a church on earth to worship God. And so um, uh, the, that brings us to the second or the third point, which is Jesus builds His church. Jesus builds the church. Isn't on the defensive; it's not shrinking. Right? Uh, how can how can something that's in the process of being built get smaller? Um, the church is growing. It's not a desperate enclave of a small band of of believers. Jesus doesn't say he will guard the church or defend the church or preserve the church. All of those things are true. We could look to other passages in the New Testament that talk about how Jesus will guard and and protect and defend. But that's not what he says here to his disciples, right? To 
to these 12 disciples, um, it's an audacious claim for him to say this, but he says this knowing it's true. I will build my church. I will build my church. This may be counterintuitive, right? Like the crucifixion. In this passage itself, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Peter didn't get it, right? Peter didn't get it. Um, Success on Good Friday looked like death on a cross. That is what the greatest victory that that Jesus ever won over sin and death looked like. Death on a cross. Success is counterintuitive in God's providence. Um, And yet death never has the last word. Jesus says, on the third day I will rise again. Um, Part of the promise that Peter seemed to miss when when he said to Jesus that that will never happen. Um, Death never has the last word. There's always the resurrection. Uh, Our work in and with the church has enduring significance because of the resurrection, right? So, So congregations, as I said, come. Congregations go. Denominations come. Denominations go. The church uh, ebbs and flows, although I think it's, it's always growing um, uh, uh, con- uh, on a big scale. Um, but, but parts of the church come and go. Um, and yet, uh, the, the, uh, even when a local congregation has to close its doors, we don't know what's going to happen with the church up in Alaska. Um, it's actually doing quite well still, uh, even though they've been without a pastor um, for uh, over a year now. Uh, it's, it's doing well, and it looks like perhaps it will continue. We didn't know that, and we still don't know that, right? The church may end up closing its doors, um, and, uh, and, and the congregation each go their own way. Um, even if that happens, the work of uh, that church, the ministry of my friend Andrew uh, for, the, for the years that that church existed has eternal, enduring significance because the people have eternal, enduring life. Um, and uh, the, the work that was done in and with them uh, during that time will continue because they will continue. Furthermore, Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Jesus builds his church and gives the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are a defensive mechanism. They're not an offensive mechanism. Um, this goes back to the point the church is not on the defensive. It's not a desperate enclave of a small band of believers. Um, church or Gates uh, keep people out. Right? That's what they were there for. They, the gates of the city were there to keep the invading armies out. And Jesus is saying the church is the invading army. The church is at the gates. It's beating on the doors. And eventually the doors will give in and the church will succeed. Now, it, it is important to note um, that gates of hell, that phrase... Um, is a specific phrase. It's used in the Old Testament a few times. It's used in the Jewish literature between the Old Testament and, and the New Testament a few times. And it doesn't refer to the stronghold of Satan. It's not like where Satan and his demons hang out. Um, it's uh, and, and so what Jesus isn't saying, he's not saying we're going to like run into the stronghold of Satan and, and slay a bunch of demons. Um, again, elsewhere in the New Testament, there, Paul talks about how our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but, but against principalities and powers. And Peter talks about the, the devil ro- ro- roaming around like a prowling lion. So, so there is that aspect of spiritual warfare, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Gates of hell, in these other contexts, refers to the place 
place of the dead. It's the place where the dead are. What Jesus is saying is that the church is in the business of bringing new life to dead people. The church is in the business of calling those who are in darkness into light. Um, and, uh, and, and that's exactly what the church has been doing for the last 2,000 years. Uh, the church has been proclaiming the life that can be found in Jesus. Uh, it has been calling uh, dead people to new life. And in fact, there's incontrovertible evidence uh, that Jesus' promise remains true, and it's right here today. It's you sitting in the pews. The fact that you all are here... 2,000 years later, thousands and thousands of miles away, gathered together to read a book written 2,000 years ago by some uh, Jewish person about a Jewish Messiah, that is incontrovertible proof that Jesus is building his church and that the church is in the business of bringing dead people to new life. Whether or not that was in your uh, life or in your parents' life or your grandparents, at some point in your family history, God broke in through the church to bring new life into to you and your family line. And, uh, and so we know, we trust, we believe that Jesus is in the process of building his church even when it doesn't look like it. And again, as I said, that doesn't necessarily promise that Um, Any one particular congregation will endure, but we know that the church as a whole will, and there will always be a church on earth to worship God. Finally, last point, it's Jesus who builds his church. It's not you, it's not me, it's not someone else, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who builds the church. Um, And, uh, of course, he uses us. We know that. Uh, he, he calls us in to be partners with him in the work that he's doing. But at the end of the day, Jesus is the one who builds the church. Even, uh, even Peter is just the rock upon which Je- Jesus builds. Right now we're getting back to the place that I, uh, that I was mentioning uh, a little bit earlier. Right? So we don't get to take pride in our accomplishments. Uh, we also don't despair when things go poorly. Jesus is, Jesus is the one who's responsible. Jesus uh, is the one who um, takes the credit and also takes the blame, if we could even say it that way. But, of course, there's no blame. Uh, it's just we don't understand uh, what, what Jesus is doing. Uh, so who is this Jesus? Peter, uh, Peter tells us um, he, he is the Christ, the Son of the Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus is the Messiah, right? The long-expected Messiah. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, uh, the, the one for whom God's people had been looking for and waiting for thousands of years. He's also the Son of the living God. Son of God is, is a common phrase. It's used frequently throughout the Gospels uh, to refer to Jesus. Peter adds here, uh, Son of the living God. Jesus is the Son of the living God. Um, now, I'm not quite sure Peter understood what he was saying. Uh, I think frequently he didn't. He just spoke whatever came to his mind. Uh, and based on Jesus' comments uh, to him in this passage, it seems likely that he didn't fully understand what he was saying. Um, but nonetheless, what does, what does living there mean? Son of the living God. Well, look at the beginning of the passage, right? Who are, who are some of the other candidates for who Jesus might be? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. All of these were great and powerful leaders, uh, 
great men who, who performed amazing feats. Some of them even raised people from the dead, performed miracles, confronted kings, proclaimed God's word. Uh, these are, are incredible people, and yet their ministries died with them. Um, the effect of their ministry perhaps continues, sort of like the ripples on a pond from a rock that's thrown, uh, but eventually those ripples fade, right? Uh, Elijah was in the grave. He could no longer heal people. He could no longer raise people from the dead. He could no longer confront kings. Uh, his ministry died with him. Likewise, John the Baptist uh, and, and Jeremiah and all the others. My friend Andrew in Alaska, um, he's, he's, by God's grace, he's still alive, uh, miraculously, and, and, I, and I mean that um, genuinely. No one expected him to live this long. Uh, he's no longer in Alaska. He's, he's in Washington. They left about a year ago, basically, so that he could die um, near his family. Uh, and his wife's family in Washington, um, and yet he's still alive. We're not quite sure what God's doing. He actually just had a, an incredibly good report from the doctors. Some of the tumors are um, shrinking, and some of them have disappeared. So uh, we don't know what's going on. But regardless of whether or not he lives six days or six, or six years or even 60 years, eventually he will die. Um, I will die, you will die, all of us will die. Whatever good ministry we're doing, either full-time ministry or ministry to your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, eventually your work on earth ends because you will die. And yet Jesus, Jesus' ministry continues forever because, as the book of Hebrews tells us, he has been given an indestructible life. He has already died and already raised from the dead. He will never, ever die again. The book of Acts teaches us uh, that Jesus' ministry continues. The, the, the book of Acts begins, it's written by Luke, the same uh, person who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and, and he says, you know, oh, Theophilus, this is part two of the Gospel that I wrote to you. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and he says, uh, I wrote to you everything that Jesus began to do and teach in the Gospel of Luke. The implication there is that the book of Acts is everything that Jesus continues to do and teach, even though before the end of chapter 1, Jesus is gone. Acts has 28 chapters, 27 and a half chapters, Jesus isn't on the scene. And what Luke tells us is that the book of Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and teach in and through his church. Jesus' ministry continues forever because Jesus continues forever. Uh, Jesus' ministry did not die with him because he was raised again. Uh, And as we look to Christmas, as we uh, continue in this Advent season, this period of waiting, um, in in whatever uh, situation you find yourself in, whatever um, situation you might be confused or anxious about, uh, we recognize in this season uh, that we, we look with longing and hope to the time when Jesus will return again, when Jesus comes back for his bride, for his church, um, in order uh, to complete that he has been doing in and with the church. And, uh, and so in the midst of, of all of that, in the midst of the waiting, in the midst of um, the anxiety, in the midst of the confusion and the darkness, we put our hope in the fact that Jesus has promised that he will build his church. Um, and, uh, and that gives us hope in, in, this, in this time. 
uh, as we look for his second coming. Let me close this in prayer. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for your promise to us. Um, We thank you that you have promised and for 2,000 years you have shown us that you will build your church. uh, And we pray that you would help us to have confidence in that promise, to find our hope, to find our comfort, to find our security and, and stability Uh, in the knowledge that you love us, that you care for us, that you are powerful, that you live, that you are coming again uh, for us, your church. We pray this in your name. Amen.